one other thing that we have not mentioned so far is documentation. And that's like another important thing to make it so that you can actually hand off a project from one engineer to another or have multiple engineers working on it so that one doesn't have to kind of mind read for the previous person writing the code. Having like decision documents when an architectural decision is being made, all those types of things help to set context for the next person. So the next person isn't just like, let's rewrite this for the sake of rewriting this or whatever. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. If you're new to the pod, don't forget to subscribe. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. And if you're a longtime party animal, thank you. We appreciate you listening. Check out our membership program at changelog.com slash plus plus. Drop the ads, get bonuses like extended episodes, and directly support the show. Thanks to our friends at Fastly for shipping JS Party all around the world to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, you know what time it is. It's party time, y'all. Hello, JS Party people. Yes, the sound of those beats. And if you're watching on YouTube, those bopping heads going back and forth, that means we are ready for this week's JS Party. I'm K-Ball. I'm your host this week. I'm excited to do this episode. We're going to try some new stuff, which should be fun. But I am joined this week by two of my favorite co-panelists. First off, Ali Spittle. Ali, how are you going? Good, good. How about you? Life is good. I've got my coffee. I'm high energy and ready to go. Uh, Nick Nisi. Hoi hoi. How's it going? It's going well. Your consistency with hoi hoi is amazing because we have a, a recording of that and it sounds just the same. Like, can we, we'll, I'll try that and you tell me which one is real. Ahoy hoi. Ahoy hoi. All right. Maybe not as consistent as I thought, but okay. So we are starting off this week with a new segment. And if it works, maybe we'll do this again a few times. So if you're listening, let us know what you think of this segment. We'll try. But this segment is going to be about all the weird things that JavaScript as a language does. So this segment is called WTFJS. And introducing this segment, folks, were, we were talking about it and we wanted an intro. Now, we have a lot of intros where we got like Matt Ryer from GoTime or something to do it. And like, he's really talented. So if you ask him to do an intro, like he'll play something in guitar and sing it. Folks had me do the intro and this is what you get. If you WTFJS. <laughs> so WTFJS about the weird things that is this language we spend so much of our time talking about. Ali, you have a really fun one to share. Do you want to go first? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have two. Should we rotate? Yeah, we could rotate. That sounds good. Okay. I should warn folks, we're going to import one of our uh, our panelists. He has some great takes on things and, and we're just going to reference occasionally. So listen out for some bone skull sound effects as well as we go through here. <laughs> Great. Cause I'll be needing some bleeping for this one. So one of my favorite really weird JavaScript things is that you can actually write anything in JavaScript using only brackets, parentheses, a bang and a plus sign. So you can write anything in JavaScript with these. What? So if you use combinations of them, you can do anything. So for example, our hello world at doing this would be 4,325 characters. So it's definitely not the efficient way of doing things. And it's become kind of an esoteric subset of JavaScript and it's named JS bleep. 
inspired by brain bleep, uh, which <laughs> probably a lot of listeners have, have heard of. It's esoteric programming language that's only using characters. And you can write the whole entire alphabet with this. So for example, if you wanted to get like an A for an alert, in order to do an alert, aren't alerts like deprecated now? Anyways, if you wanted to write an alert, an array is truthy. So in order to get the word false, you could do bang and then an empty array. You could get true by doing bang, bang, and then that empty array too. So you could get the letter A from the word false by getting the first index from the word false. And then you could use the zero index, which is plus and then an empty array. And so it's all really, really, really wild. It makes no sense. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So you use bang array. Yes. To get generate a false because that's the opposite of, of truthy. Exactly. But then you map it, you make it a string or you treat it as a string and you index into it. You treat it as a string. And so you're going to index into it with one, yeah, but yeah. you don't want to use a number. So you're actually getting one from the array plus one or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just blew my mind. So you get the number one by doing, let me see. Oh, I see it. I was just playing with this. If you do plus array, you get zero. And if you do plus bang, bang array, you get one. There you go. And then you could add another one, right? So you could do like plus bang, bang array. Yeah. Yeah. So you do plus bang, bang array, plus bang, bang array, you get two. And so now you've got all your numbers. <laughs> then you're indexing into false or true. Yeah, or false in order to get the A for like an alert, for example. And then you could do the same in order to get the L from false for an alert. I guess I have to call it to Chris on this. What? That's <laughs> blowing my mind. So how would you experiment with this? Where would you go? Well, first you can just do it in your JavaScript console. So anywhere that you can run JavaScript, you can run JS bleep. But you can also try out, there's this REPL at jsbleep.com, but you sub in the word for, for bleep, the F word there. And then you can put in any line of JavaScript and it'll show you what it would be in JS bleep. Okay. So if we were to do A and encode it in JS bleep, it ends up, <laughs> oh dear, it's totally unreadable. It's totally unreadable. <laughs> All right. First entry dominating. Okay, Nick, what have you got? Well, I've been struggling with this because I mean, just using JavaScript and not TypeScript is just a big WTF. So I'll throw that out there as my first one, but I do have another one. Do you remember array-like objects? They still exist. I mean, they're still there, but WTF, they're wild. They're not quite arrays. They're just objects that have a length property and index things by numbers. And real APIs like DOM APIs use them and return them and facilitated the need for like the array.from method, for example. Like it's just a big WTF to me. I don't know. So can you take an object that is not an array-like object and make it an array-like object by just giving it a length? Yeah. But then it will, like if you give it an, a length of five and then you try to like iterate over that with like a, a for loop or something like that, it would be trying to look at the indexes, zero, one, two, three, which could exist as properties on the object or could not and could just be undefined and return undefined for everything. So it's just a weird way to to get that. But then on top of that, with modern JavaScript, we also have, you can implement iterables on there. You can use symbol.iterator to create your own custom iterator method on, on anything. And uh, 
Yeah, it's just wild. All these ways that we have to sort of be arrays. And then we also have sets, which is kind of like an array. Trying to figure out what the right reaction to that is. I think it might be <laughs> JavaScript should be destroyed. Appropriate. Yeah. Possibly. Okay, so I've got one which is more of a cross browser oddity. So, JavaScript, I think one of the things that makes JavaScript so weird is that we, there's no standard implementation environment, right? Like, there's JavaScript is being run in different browsers and also on the server. And these are all implementations of the language. And so, any sort of spec edge case gets treated in, in a different way. So the first one I'm going to talk about is like dates and time zones. So if you do like a new date, and say you do like new date 2022-01-01, if you do that in Firefox, you get back a date that is you know January 1st, 2022. If you do that in Chrome, at least if you're in the US, you get back Monday, December 31st, 2021. Because the new date does it in UTC. But if you're in a time zone such that that time UTC is actually the day before, like the, uh, Chrome actually returns the object in the user's time zone. And so you can ask for one date and actually get the date previous. Even more fun, if you ask for a date in February that does not exist. So February is a weird month, right? We've, we've got only 28 days where most months, if you, you can go up to 30 or 31. If you ask for the 31st of February, Firefox will rightly tell you, hey, that's an invalid date, but Chrome will happily hand you a date that is for March 2nd. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know if that's a, a JavaScriptism or a browserism, but it's a hole in the spec, I think, that is implemented in kind of a weird way. Dates are just so hard in general. Dates are hard. So hard, so hard. Although I kind of like the way that Chrome handles it that it goes to like March 2nd or whatever, because it makes adding to dates much easier. Totally. Well, and I was wondering, like, does it let me do that for anything? Like, can I ask for the 64th of January? But there it will do invalid. Oh, interesting. Or if you even ask for like the 32nd of something, it will do invalid. But if you ask for the 31st of February, it will map it over into March. <laughs> so interesting. I wonder what the cutoff is. I don't know. Yeah, I guess we'd have to like dig into the source code or something or try it cool ali you said you had another one as well yeah and so this is more of a programming oddity and it's not even really an oddity it's how it's supposed to be but if you've ever done like 0.1 plus 0.2 in javascript you'll notice that you get like three point and then a bunch of zeros and then a four You've probably done this before. You've done like float math and like seeing this really, really random number show up. I have it happen if I handle like a shopping cart or whatever with floats instead of strings or instead of doing the integer math or whatever. So this is a thing across most programming languages. It is the way that it has to be because binary is base two. And so it only handles like one half, one fourth, one eighth cleanly. And so something like one fifth or one tenth would be a repeating decimal. And so this is expected <laughs> that it needs to have in order to be properly represented in binary is to have like this weird number at the end there. So that's my other favorite one is that there's an, actually a reason for this. And there's a website that handles, that explains this really well. It's called 
the, so the subdomain is zero and then it's 0.3 and then a bunch of zeros and then four.com. So we'll leave that in the show notes, but I like these little like explainer sites that explain these really niche concepts. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are a lot of them for JavaScript. Yes. You need to get exactly the right number of zeros. So I just checked to see if they like reserved the <laughs> the other domains if you like have typo it. So how many zeros is that? It's like one, two, three, four, five, six. It's like 15 zeros. So 0.3 followed by 15 zeros, I think. Yeah, I think it's 10 to the negative 14th is what it says down in the footnotes. So that would that would track. <laughs> That's a fun one. Nick, do you have any other JavaScript weirdities that you want to share? Yeah, I'll share one more. These are all things that you never really run into, hopefully, in real life code. So the number in JavaScript, like the the number object or number constructor has some constants on it. It has number.min value and number.max value. And those are some ridiculous numbers, ridiculously high numbers or ridiculously low numbers. If you take the min value, which if you just print it out, it's 5e to the negative 324th. If you do an equal or a, uh, a comparison on that and say number.min value is greater than zero, it becomes true, even though it's a negative value. Just, just amazing. Is it a negative value? 5e negative, that's like, 5 is positive, right? So it's going to... Oh, wait, yeah, you're right. It's like 5 in the 324th decimal place past the... Or points past the decimal. Because you can do negative min value, number.min value, and then it's false too. Yeah, you're right. But it's... You can still have negative values, and you can have zero, right? And so it should be the minimum value that you can have, but it's not. Mm -hmm. it's like the smallest fraction not the most negative yeah and i think that it's just taking that float and converting it to an int and then doing the comparison to zero which is why it's coming out that way interesting there's always lots of fun simple explanations as to why those things happen but it's very fun i see there's also a number.max safe integer i don't know if this will do it for you but if I do in Chrome the max safe integer plus one, it shows me a number that is one more. But if I also do max safe integer plus two, it actually shows me the same number. <laughs> so if I do number.max safe integer plus one equal to number.max safe integer plus two, it says true. But if I do plus three on one side, it says false. Yeah. So <laughs> at least in Chrome, it's jumping in some weird way. Yeah. I'm trying in the node REPL too, and I was trying with the min safe integer and subtracting one and subtracting two, and those are identical. And then subtracting three is two more or two less, I guess. And then subtracting five is two less from that. I think that might be just a Chrome bug, but that sounds like JavaScript should be destroyed. <laughs> it's just like uh, physics, right? They just, JavaScript is the black hole that, that physics falls apart around or that number. Number addition falls apart around arithmetic. Awesome. I have one last one that I will share, which is related to sort. So if you have a set of strings and you have them in an array, you can sort them. And if you sort them without passing a comparison function, it will do kind of what you expect. It'll sort them in alphabetical order. But if you pass a comparison function, which is something that in theory you should be able to do, you know, you pass a and B, and you return B minus A, which is what works with numbers or things like that, it behaves differently, once again, in Chrome versus Firefox. And I think 
it has to do with string subtraction not being defined or not or, or returning not a number but it's it's kind of weird like in theory if you want to sort something backwards you pass in the comparator and you do b minus a instead of a minus b right like the default will be ascending order you want to do it backwards you pass this in but for strings it suddenly goes to indeterminate behavior and so i think you need like a reverse method instead i think it's also super interesting that the algorithm that different browsers use for sort is different too so like some of them use like tim sort some of them use merge sort and then some are quick sort which i think is also like fascinating totally so there you have it our inaugural wtfjs let us know what y'all think you want more of this or it's worthless because this stuff is actually not things that you should be using in your day to day. <laughs> Talking about maintainable code bases. Let's just have a little bit more of a conversation about what makes for a maintainable code base. I mean, I think not using JS bleep <laughs> comes to mind. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> it's a really hard to read a 4,000 letter long hello world. That is kind of an interesting like code obfuscation. And if you're trying to like get something in that, that people aren't going to understand, like you could do something there, but yeah, but for the most part, don't do it at home folks. Is there a way to go backwards from a JS bleep to what it was trying to do? Ooh, I don't know if there's an interpreter for it. I mean, you could just execute the code, run like a console log on it instead of a, or like an eval and then to a string and then console log or something, but that'd probably be how you'd have to do it. So what else have y'all seen that makes for making a code base maintainable? I feel like we, we all want a maintainable code base, right? We all want something that is, oh, this is going to be easy to maintain and it's not going to you know, keep blowing up on us. We're not going to have the team slowing down because the the code base is hard to maintain. But like, what does that actually mean to you? Well, there's some basic things that really used to be much more of a problem, but aren't really in today's world. And that's like code style. We used to maintain a manual code style document that was like, you should have a space after an if statement, but before the parentheses and, and things like that. But we don't have that anymore in like a document style. We just have, tools like prettier or some other formatter that just formats it for you. And as long as everyone's on board with that, then all the code looks the same in a good way. And it makes it much more readable for everyone. Yeah. It saves you from having to like have arguments within code reviews. Like, yeah. Hey, I, I don't like this semicolon. Well, okay. Well <laughs> automated doesn't matter. Anybody <laughs> yes. have a guide for this. Yeah. Some of the choices prettier or like, black or you know the python formatter or like all these different formatters some of their choices are really weird but mm -hmm. it does stop the arguments definitely and you can really use that as a a tool like i write the most concise code like on a single line i'll write things very quickly and then i'll hit save and prettier will format it for me and so i can like use that as a shortcut to write code fast and then it yeah just gets prettified as i go that's what I do for sure as well. It's, it's too much work to worry about indentation myself. <laughs> I'll just have yeah. my have my <laughs> editor do that myself for me. 
I think another really, really important one for maintainable code bases is an appropriate level of abstraction. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes you can go really, really heavy on abstraction and it makes it so that the code base is impossible to navigate, especially for somebody joining that code base. They just can't figure out where to find things. So if there's like 18 levels of inheritance or something like that, that makes it very, very difficult to find, hey, this is where this attributes coming from, or this is where this method is. But then also on the inverse, if you are rewriting things over and over and over again, that also becomes impossible to maintain because then you have to update things in 18 different places every single time that you want to update something. So having like a very appropriate level of abstraction is difficult to do, but I think it's one of the most important things for making it so that more people can contribute to a code base and that that code base is able to live a long time. So how would you define or measure or like what are the smells or, or whatever that say this is the appropriate level of abstraction? Ugh, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know if there's <laughs> like a set of finite rules that I would have, but I think one of the biggest things, and I guess this is less relevant because object-oriented programming isn't as like hot in JavaScript right now, but that is something that I saw all the time when I was a software engineer working on the back end is that there would be so many levels of inheritance that it would just be impossible to figure out where things were coming from. So having like a set rule on your code base, whether it's like three levels of inheritance or two or something like that, where you can have abstractions, but you make it so that they're at least possible to navigate. I think that that's important. Um, I also think that when you're cleaning up duplication, thinking about hey, like, is this something that's going to be duplicated twice or is this something that's going to be duplicated 50 times? And if it's something that's just going to be duplicated twice, maybe, just maybe, think about, like, is this going to make the code base more complex to abstract this or is it going to make it more readable? So I think thinking about those types of things is important. Another smaller thing, and I used to read a lot of Sandy Metz earlier in my career, uh, like obsessed with her books. And I know that they're Ruby oriented, but I think that they really do apply to any programmer. I've never really been a full-time Ruby person myself. So I've learned a ton from there. And I think another thing that she mentions is having relatively short classes, methods, and functions. So having like a hundred lines as your length for a class, which I think that those rules can be bent a little bit depending on your individual code base. But I do think that if you're going to a file of code and it has like 4,000 lines of code in it, that becomes very hard to navigate as well. And I do see that like all the time still. <laughs> those really, really long files or these really, really long classes. And also like a function should do one thing and one thing well. And if it's doing like three different things, if the function should have an and in the name of it, that's another sign that it's going to be very difficult to figure out what that function is doing and to update it in the future. So her rule is like five lines of code for a method or function. And I think that in a lot of cases, that's a decent length as well. Maybe you could double that for your code base or something like that. But again, if you're getting to like a hundred line functions, which again, I've seen in production code bases, it's sometimes like, it maybe we should rethink that it's going to be pretty hard to maintain that. Totally. Well, and you've alluded to something that I think is good, which is like most of these rules should be rules of thumb that occasionally you'll find a case where it's 
not appropriate. And you should not get in a fight over a six line function, you know, just because five is your line. Maybe sometimes you actually need six lines and especially like white space sensitive languages like Python or, you know, if you're prettier format and JavaScript extends, you know, how you're doing it, like don't fight over that number, but it, it is a good rule of thumb. I think this question of like, what's the right level of dryness is really interesting. Yes. Mm -hmm. The industry was obsessed for a while about dry everything, dry everything, dry everything. And I remember having a conversation a long time ago with, with Michael Chan, Chantastic from the React podcast. And we actually, we recorded an episode with him. Um, and we were talking about like dry code is dead code. It's code that's not changing. And that can be really good for something that's well understood. But if it's an actively changing part of your code base, or it wasn't dead code, it was like brittle code. Dry code is brittle in the sense that it's hard to change it because lots of things depend on it behaving in a particular way. And so it can be good to dry things out when when you've got something that has showed up as a pattern over and over again, and you know, okay, this we're always wanting to do this in this particular way. But actively changing parts of your code base should probably not be dry because you're still trying to understand like what are the abstractable bits what else makes for a maintainable code base or maybe turning it around what makes for a terrible hard to maintain code base probably the inverses of what we just talked about <laughs> for the most part i think another one that we haven't talked about yet is testing and on both sides that making sure that you have a system set up that you can catch errors and make sure that adding one feature isn't breaking a bunch of other features or even any features. That's really, really important to have. And also I think writing tests makes it so that you have to think about your code a little bit more as well. So I think that's another, another big value add there. So that's another point of conversation is testing. Yeah, and having the right or testing the right things, having a testing code base that you trust too. Like if there's any like we have occasionally some tests that are like um I'm forgetting the word for them, but they intermittently like fail in areas and it makes us really skeptical about the code. And it might just be like things that are just weird timeouts and things with the tests, but it causes distrust in the testing system and it causes distrust when we go to change those things. Mm -hmm. I was going to go in a similar direction, but talking about like, yeah, testing at the right levels of abstraction. So like mm -hmm. backend models, unit testing, like really fine grained unit testing can be really useful for view components. Testing like the rendered state to me is usually like unit tests are not the right level of abstraction there because anytime you're changing your UI, you you just end up with additional churn and you're not actually checking very much. And I end up biasing much more to, for end-to-end -end tests to test my UI. And then if there's like logic that's happening in the front end, we can have unit tests for those. But like the HTML that's getting rendered, in my experience, like having tests in that reduces the maintainability of that code because you just end up doubling the effort anytime you make a change. Let me ask you a question on that, K-Ball. Mm -hmm. When you say end-to-end, -end, what's the end and what's the other end? Mm. Is it like from this end of the component to that end of the component or from this end of... No, whole stack. So get a yep. database booted up, render your application, use Selenium to drive through it as a an actual browser, as a user would. Get, build yourself utilities for logging in and doing getting yourself all in the right state. But testing the UI as a user, as it connects all the way back through your API. Mm -hmm. Now that's a complex setup. Mm -hmm. Does that lead to 
issues because it's harder to just spin up quickly? Maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. So we we run end-to-end primarily in our CI tools. Mm-hmm. So it takes a long time. The end-to-end tests are the slowest part of our testing. And this actually kind of gets to uh, another area here. So not just tests, but tests that run automatically, tests that don't require cognitive overhead, remembering to run them, doing something like that, but tests that run in a, anytime you push a change and you're, you're submitting a pull request that all the tests pass and they catch things, I think is a huge part of what makes for a, div- a maintainable code base. And this actually, there's a whole realm we can talk about there in terms of practices, right? Like having a general team practice of always having a clean trunk or main branch that can be deployed so that you reduce the cognitive overhead of, wait, if I'm doing this change, do I have to check with these people or check this thing before I can push it out and do things like that? Like that's not necessarily anything in the code itself. It's a practice for how you keep the code and what how you approach the code and what qualifies as done, but makes a huge difference in your sort of sense of maintainability because now if an issue comes in and I wanna do a target, a point fix and deploy it, I know I can. Yeah, and kind of leading, well, not really leading from that, but another similar thing is like having tests run automatically is a really good thing. So having like a whole CI pipeline, but also just thinking about like your review pipeline and how code reviews get done. We utilize a tool that GitHub provides called a code owner's file that lets you specify files or globs of files that are owned by a particular team. And so anytime, you know, you can freely go change whatever files but the code owner's file will just automatically tag the appropriate people to be a reviewer on that pull request as it goes through, just to make sure that you have kind of more domain level experts looking at things before they're they're getting merged. Ooh, that's cool. I didn't know about that feature. I'll put a link in the show notes on that. I want to look into that. Anything else that comes to mind, either on the absolutely you should be doing this or absolutely you should not be doing this? I think one thing that helps in terms of maintainability is in kind of going in that tooling direction, like typed code makes a big difference in terms of maintainability because it has a whole class of issues that you can catch now at compile time without additional requirements from the user to think about it. I think in, I spent a lot of my career in like loose typing, duck typing worlds. And there you have to be extremely thoughtful about how you write your unit tests to handle and catch classes of errors that the type checker will catch for you without you ever having to think about it. And so it makes both writing new code, but especially refactoring code, changing code, just so much easier that it dramatically increases the maintainability of your code base. And there are you know, even for, you know, TypeScript is a great example. Um, in Python, there's MyPy. Like even languages that don't have strong typing have abilities to add that level of protection at this point. Mm-hmm. I think one other thing that we have not mentioned so far is documentation. And that's like another important thing to make it so that you can actually hand off a project from one engineer to another or have multiple engineers working on it so that one doesn't have to kind of mind read for the previous person writing the code. Like why were these decisions made? Having like decision documents when an architectural decision is being made, like all those types of things help to set context for the next person. So the next person isn't just like, let's rewrite this for the sake of 
rewriting this or <laughs> whatever. Like, what was the context there? Why did people make those decisions? So there's a lot of different layers of documentations from code comments to more like centralized true documentation for a project to like the decision and architectural documents from the beginning of the project. And I think keeping all of those and making sure to surface them is another really important part. Mm -hmm. Totally. I was going to say kind of towards the, you know, using types, which is another form of documentation, really, but using code generation whenever possible, specifically for things like don't be manually typing out the responses that you get from, you know, your server or your database or whatever, have those be automatically generated. And there's great tools that can do it from GraphQL or from REST schemas and just generate them automatically so that they're always 100% correct. And then you can you don't have any ambiguity or incorrect types that you're working off of. Totally. Going in on the documentation a little bit, which I love that you brought that up, Ali. I think one of the things that I've seen be challenging, especially for newer developers, is to know the right level of yeah. documentation and commenting to put in. A rule of thumb that I've heard that I really like is that if you're commenting in a file, like within a function or something like that, comments should always be a different level of abstraction than the code. So either a higher level of abstraction, communicating the why behind this, why would you use this function, why would you do this, or a lower level of abstraction where it's like, okay, we're doing, here's the details of why this algorithm works. I think a lot of more novice developers or, or folks who haven't thought about it deeply will comment at the same level as their code. I'm going to change this thing to this thing. And the code should already do that. Should document itself, yeah. Yeah, it should document itself there. Where the additional commenting is really helpful is that additional context that's at a slightly different layer of abstraction. For sure. The comments should be the why, not the what. Mm -hmm. Have you encountered other good guidelines for like right level of abstraction to do in design decision documents or other the other types of documentation that you brought up? Ooh, I don't know if I have direct rules for them by any means, but I think that having those is important. I think I've worked at a lot of like early stage startups and those things just do not exist whatsoever. And then working at a bigger company, having to do like reviews before any code is written of here's the plans, here's what we're going to do, here are the thoughts behind this here's why these decisions were made. I think that that's like incredibly important because I've seen so many times where it's like, okay, we've got this Python code base. Let's now rewrite it in Ruby because that person who was writing Ruby before or the person who was writing Python left the team and we don't understand why they decided to do it this way. And so like, let's just start from scratch. And it's just not productive. <laughs> and so having to think through those things, justify them to other people. So if that if people disagree, they can disagree then rather than after the code base is written. I think that that's so important. And also just having to justify your decisions is such a important part of being an engineer. But then the documentation point for maybe like an API or something like that, having it laid out, like, here's how to use this. You don't just have to guess. You don't just have to dive into the code in order to, to figure out how to use your API or documentation to explain how the code base is organized. That's another huge one so mm -hmm. that more people can jump into it. And they don't have to spend like a week trying to figure out where the class for this is. I think that all of those are things that really, really help out. Totally. Something you were saying reminded me, I, I was having a conversation like this on what, what belongs in a design doc. And a couple of things that I have been thinking about and trying to, to advocate to folks as well are like 
the things you considered that you chose not to do. Because I think a lot of times we bias towards the, we, like we forget the negative space. We talk a lot about where we landed and our final thing, but we don't talk about what we ruled out and why. And then the other thing that I think is really helpful if you can do it, it's hard, but is if you can lay out what would make it worth reconsidering this decision, like what types of changes, new information or new tools or, or new things would make it worth reconsidering this decision? Because I think some of the resistance for to design docs is like the world is dynamic. Things are changing. It might actually be different, but you want the design doc so that not you're not always relitigating this. You have, yeah. you know, if somebody's coming in and saying, did you think about this? Did you think about this? You can say, yes, look in the design doc. You can see all the things we thought about. But there is sometimes that question of here's something I didn't think of. Here's the thing. So if you can sort of flesh out, like, these are the types of things that would cause this decision to not be right anymore. Yeah. That can be super helpful. Definitely. Super important. And having like a review meeting about that design doc, I think is so important too, so that people can poke holes in it before the decisions are actually fully made and can't be reversed. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the current moment in tech, because it feels like if you're on Twitter or you're you're watching things, the zeitgeist has shifted within like weeks from yeah. this is the hottest market for engineers in history. You can never, you know, you have dozens of job offers and like if you're hiring, like you just can't find people to, oh no, everything is stopping in like weeks. It has gone there. <laughs> and there's like Y Combinator put this memo out about like plan for the worst, you know, try to do all these things. And Sequoia has a deck and like, all of these different things. So I thought it might be worth us just sort of talking about what's actually going on. Like what's causing this? Is it as bad as people are saying? Like, and what should people do about this? So I have lots of thoughts because it, it's been top front of my mind, but I'm, I'm very curious what y'all have seen and heard and how you're thinking about this. I'd be lying if I said it didn't cause extra anxiety, just thinking about it a little bit. It's been on my mind because you're right. It did just go from you can leave and get 30 to 50% just by, you know, hopping companies to maybe I won't have a job next week. And I don't think that's the case for me, but like, it does seem like the, just the tides are shifting, but at the same time, like, is there a, a delineation that can be made between like some of the like more venture-backed startup companies versus like more established companies. Cause at the same time we've seen articles about like Microsoft doubling their, their compensation budgets for the next year. Yeah. I think it's unreal how fast this has turned. And I think that, I mean, the economy in general has clearly shifted with the response to inflation and then also the shift in the markets as well. I think that even a lot of software engineers, a lot of our compensation is based on the company stock. And so that has dramatically decreased for a lot of people over the past few months as well. So even if you're at your current job, you're probably still affected even if you haven't been laid off. And so I think it's a really interesting economic moment of will this be a recession, which is a very scary thought, I think, for a lot of us, 
Or is this just a momentary thing? Is it just that things are shifting and we're kind of correcting for the fact that a lot of these companies boomed really, really fast due to the changes in our lives due to the pandemic. So I think that we'll have to see. I don't think anybody knows, like people who work in finance have predictions, but I think it's a really, really hard thing to predict. And there's lots of conflicting predictions out there, but it's a tough time. And it's really, really wild how fast it shifted from like, you got to leave your job. You got to get a new job while everything's hot. Like software engineers are getting paid a bajillion dollars a year. Now everybody needs to take advantage like these I'm sure that everybody saw all the rumors on, on like social media about Web3 <laughs> and how much people were making in that realm. And then, I mean, that crashed overnight as well. So it's a really, really crazy time, both for us in tech, but also I think outside of it as well. Yeah. Well, and one of the the interesting things is like, there's a lot of companies that are doing layoffs, right? And there's this like layoffs.fyi site that is just tracking. What, are, what layoffs are happening in tech. And there there are quite a few. There's also a lot of companies that are still hiring. Like I saw this Twitter thread yeah. that was talking about how basically like somebody was at a CTO forum and half of the people were like, oh, I'm worried we're going to do layoffs. And half of the people were like, oh my gosh, I can finally hit my hiring goals. Like this will be great. So it definitely like seems like there's, you know, there's stuff going on, but there's also company, it's not like universal. It's not something where every tech company all of a sudden is laying people off or stopping hiring. I mean, my company, we're still hiring. Oh, we are yeah. looking at and potentially like shifting some of our later in the year hiring targets because we were planning to continue hiring very rapidly. But like short term, we're still hiring tons of folks. I have, you know, we had a couple, we're small, right? But we had new engineers start this week. I have new engineers starting in two weeks. Like my team is growing. Yeah. At AWS, we're still hiring like, crazy as well like can't find enough engineers still so that's one side of it but yeah the sky is not falling everywhere yeah so i was trying to think about what are the actual dynamics here right and i feel like there's a couple of things going on and they're all kind of hitting at the same time so like one is there were as you highlighted like there's a set of companies that grew really fast all of a sudden because of the pandemic and perhaps grew based on the assumption that this was going to change things forever. And then it's looking like it's not going to change things forever. So things like food delivery companies and teleconferencing companies and e-commerce companies, like all of these had a massive change all of a sudden from the pandemic and hired massively. And a lot of them are doing layoffs now because, I mean, the pandemic is still ongoing. There's a ton of COVID out there, but also, a lot of people are kind of over it and they're going back to work in person and they're eating out and all these other things. So the demand has not stayed elevated in the same way. Traveling and conferences too. Mm-hmm. Traveling is starting. Conferences are starting. Yeah. So I think that's one dynamic. And I don't know, are there other categories of things that fit in there that people, if they're working in that space, should be worried about? I'm not sure. I think that one that we've seen already is like e-commerce get hit really bad in growth tech more generally. Just <laughs> watching my uh, portfolio of stocks, <laughs> seeing that like, you know, Shopify going way down and other companies in that kind of same realm. I've seen a lot of that. And then I think the other really big one is crypto that we've seen that that was like just soaring this winter. And everybody's like, you know, you got to get in, you got to work <laughs> for it while you can. Like you got to get in on this. It's going to be worth 85x in a year or whatever and then it's really 
crashed and I'm not sure what the job situation looks like in that realm right now, but I think that that's another industry that's probably really struggling right now. Yeah, I feel like crypto is kind of a a particular case of a broader thing, which is like companies that were very dependent on the how much capital was like sloshing around. Like I'm a very crypto skeptic on a lot of the things. And whether you're a crypto skeptic or crypto positive, I think you'll probably agree that a huge amount of the money flowing into crypto was just capital trying to find returns, capital flowing around because we had very, very loose capital. And that has started to end. There's all sorts of capital tightening that is happening. And I think that's hitting crypto. I think that's likely to hit real estate. And real estate sales are already slowing. But I think companies that are serving the real estate market may end up getting hit there. And kind of anyone else who's depending on there being really, really cheap capital. Because we've gone from an era of cheap capital to an era where capital is getting more expensive. That's also very, like cyclic because every like vcs are you'd think vcs are risk tolerant but vcs are like the most risk averse people in so many ways and so they're like oh things are tightening i gotta tighten too and so all of these open spigots of money are shutting down and so anyone who's dependent on that like really cheap available capital they're running into challenges who's not hit you mentioned aws is not hit (laughs) too much at least that, yeah, we're still hiring like crazy right now. So, I mean, if anybody is looking, feel free to reach out. I can definitely set you up there. But I don't know. So far, being at a bigger company, I've felt a little bit isolated from it personally. But that's just been my experience so far. It seems like the more established companies, meaning like they have like means of revenue, <laughs> they're less affected by it, uh, at least for right now. But Who knows how that could change? Yeah, companies that are profitable probably are a little bit safer as well because they're not reliant on just funding. They can actually make the money themselves as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have heard things about like hiring freezes at some of the bigger tech companies. Yeah. Let's see. I know Meta did had one. I did Google as well. I'm not sure. I don't think Google, but I think Twitter. Twitter. Which I guess is less big, but. That makes sense, though. Weird in the middle there. And Meta, like, they're betting everything on something that's not going to be ready for years. So yeah, it makes sense there, too. It seems like social media in general might be a little bit impacted, which I think goes along with what we've been saying is that like, social media grew a lot during the pandemic because people were stuck online. They couldn't see people in person. And so it makes sense that they might be declining a li- or shrinking a little bit due to the change in people's lifestyles. Totally. They're also very ad focused. And so depending on where their advertising money is coming from, like, yeah, I don't know how many of our listeners remember back to like the Oh one crash, but a huge amount of that crash was because all the ad focused tech companies, their revenue was being propped up by other tech companies. And so some of them started and then that cut everybody's revenue all at once. Tech has diversified massively since then, but I wouldn't be surprised if for example, a lot of Facebook's ad revenue was from other companies that had grown massively during the pandemic and are cutting back. That may, you know, depending on who's advertising on your channel, anyone who's ad focused may get that kind of knock-on effect. Yeah, we're hiring as well. We're much smaller than AWS, but you know, if you're interested in working in a small company, you can hit me up. I know there's lots of folks out there still hiring. So I think coming back to what should an individual do? If you're concerned about this, which, you know, it's fair to be concerned. I think 
there are going to be a lot of people impacted. So Nick and Ali, what would your recommendations be for people who are maybe feeling a little bit uncertain? I think my first piece of advice is that if you're already employed somewhere, it's probably a pretty good time to stay there and not to job hop for the most part. I think for the reason that at a lot of companies, like layoffs are first in, first out, or last in, first out, I guess. So if you were recently hired, you probably have a better probability of being one of the first people laid off. And so I would suggest if you've been somewhere, it's probably a pretty good time to sit tight. But if you were laid off, to definitely reach out to your network. A lot of more tech things are happening right now. And so make sure to solidify that. It's also a good time to learn new skills and make sure that you're keeping on top of the industry. So that would be my basic advice. Yeah, I was going to say kind of the same thing. Like, don't assume too much of a safety net ever, really. You can pretty much be let go at any time for any reason in this country, at least. And it's always best to be be a little selfish on that, like looking out for yourself and kind of preparing or having like a basic preparation. You don't have to like be ready to walk out the door at a moment's notice, but keep your tech skills up, keep your interviewing skills up. And you can still be on the lookout for those opportunities because they usually stick around for a while. So, you know, like something happens, this is where I'm going to go immediately. And your network is a great first place to start. Well, and you can, you know, you talked about keeping your tech skills up. You can keep your network warm too. Mm-hmm. Reach out to folks, even though you're not looking and, and reopen conversations. How are you going doing? How is it where you're working? Are you all still hiring? Oh, okay, cool. You know, and so then, you know, if something happens and suddenly you need to find something you have, they've already got you in mind. You've sussed out where there are maybe opportunities and it, it's really fast. Now I'm very network driven, but I've been here. I've been in the industry for almost 20 years at this point. What about folks who are new to the industry? What can they do to kind of survive and and hopefully even thrive in this moment? Well, I think the same is true that networking, even if that network is new, is so important. And if you can build that network when you don't need anything from them, that's how you're going to build the most authentic network that's going to be there when you do need something. And make sure that the relationship is mutual as well, that you're giving in some way, not just taking. And so for a lot of people though, that like giving you a job at their company is like really great for them as well. So I'm not saying to, you know, not ask for that or anything like that, but if you're just like constantly asking people code questions or, Hey, can you do this for me? Can you do this for me? Can you do this for me? It makes it feel like it's a one directional, like parasocial type relationship. So make sure that it's mutual and that you have things that you're conversing about, that you're checking in on them, seeing how you can help them as well. That's one big thing. Events are happening. So if you're comfortable going to those, it's a great time to do that. But you can also network a ton online too. The best way I've found is to learn in public, like write blog posts about what you're learning. You don't have to be like a 10X expert in the industry for 50 years in order to write a good blog post. You can have learned something a couple of weeks ago and still be able to teach something pretty well to people. And I have found that that works really, really well for people trying to look for jobs is to just teach somebody else something and give back to the community because you're proving your skills and you're also getting yourself out there. So that's my biggest piece of advice, I think. Nick, anything from you? I mean, Ali, you kind of nailed it along a number of dimensions. Yeah, I really like that. Just kind of like reiterating, like there's always people that know more than you and there's always people that know less than you. And 
your insight into how you learn things or, or just sharing what you have learned is always valuable. So somebody will find it valuable. Definitely. And I think we don't talk about portfolios as much anymore, but I think that's still a really, really great way to display your skills, especially if you're a newbie, showing that you have built X app and then explain your process for building it and what technology you used, why you decided to do things X and Y way. That's going to go really far and also actually really prepare you for interviews too, because that's going to be a lot of the things that you're asked, like the trade-offs and all that. So that's another thing that you can do if you're unemployed and trying to become employed. One other thing that I'm going to put out there um, for folks is if you have time, getting involved with an open source project is another useful way to network and and also build a track record. Because a lot of the challenge in hiring folks who are newer to the industry, I speak this now as a hiring manager, is there's no track record. I have no idea looking at your resume if you are just out of school or just out of a boot camp or whatever. I, I have no idea if you're one of the, the boot camp grads who's going to be amazing or one of the boot camp grads who still doesn't know anything about code. And we can try to figure that out, but a lot of companies won't bother. A lot of companies look, they'll say, eh, not worth our time. And I can tell you, like we're we're right now, it's hard to filter through boot camp grads. We've got hundreds of boot camp grads applying and like it takes a lot of time and energy and, and we care a lot. So we're figuring out how do we work through this, but it is is really hard. And a lot of companies will just say, no, you know what? If you don't have any track record, I'm not even gonna bother talking with you. And so looking for ways to manufacture that track record. And one way you can do that is getting involved with open source. And if you can show a history of contribution to a project, that is a track record. The people who are on that project are going to know of you. They become a proto network, a set of people. So I think... I hesitate to point everyone there because it does take a time commitment and not everyone has the ability to put that time in. But if you do, that can be a great way to kind of hack around that lack of track record. Another thing that's very related to that that helped me early on in my career is getting involved with like the local community, the local dev community. I'm in Omaha. It's not a huge community, but you know, there's some very niche people that I got to know and I got several offers and accepted a few just from word of mouth or from we knew each other from going to the <laughs> the Pearl meetup or, or things like that. Like just getting involved early on really helped my career tremendously. It's harder now to give that advice, I think, in a pandemic slash post-pandemic world where <laughs> those things exist or don't anymore. Yeah, I think a lot of them are coming back, but even the ones that aren't, they're still like virtual events mm-hmm. or you can use social media in that same kind of way that we used in-person events back in the day. For sure. I will also say that as a fellow hiring manager, that a lot of times if you can build some sort of relationship with those hiring managers, that tends to help out a little bit as well. So if you can, it just all goes back to networking, right? Of Building up that strong network and making relationships. Like I, I saw this so much. I used to teach at a coding boot camp and I also used to hire a lot of juniors of this kind of like spray technique for applying to jobs of just submitting a resume every single place you could and applying for every single job on LinkedIn. And in a lot of cases, those types of jobs get like thousands of applicants. And so it's impossible to get to the top of that pile of resumes if you don't have some sort of 
like knowledge of somebody at the company or some sort of personal outreach or something along those lines. So if you can find, hey, this is like the hiring manager for the role, I'm going to write them an email about how I'm like qualified for it or whatever. I think that things like that can go a long way too, because you can get really, really lost in that like sea of applicants. Or if you've met them at a meetup or something along those lines, that goes a long way too. Totally. In the end, we are still human. And yes, reaching out as a human makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, any last things y'all want to leave folks with or should we call this a wrap? I think we're probably pretty good. Mm-hmm. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this JS party for the inaugural WTF JS for a discussion about maintainable code bases and a look at this moment in technology. We'll catch you all next week. If you're listening and you want to join us live, you can always join us live at on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 o'clock Eastern, and who knows what it is in Omaha, but <laughs> we'll play with y'all. All right. Take it easy, y'all. That is our show for this week. Now's a great time to subscribe if you haven't yet. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. And if you're a longtime listener of the pod, pay it forward and share JS Party with a friend. We love when new folks join the party and tell us they were personally recommended. So cool. Oh, and here's something new. You can now buy a ChangeLog sticker pack from our merch shop. Or just get one for free when you join ChangeLog++. Yep, we are adding stickers to the bag of goodies you receive for directly supporting our work. Learn more at changelog.com slash plus plus. Thanks again to Fastly for CDMing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for cranking out the beats, and to you for listening. Next up on the pod, Josh Goldberg, the author of Learning TypeScript, will be our guest. We'll have that episode ready to put in your ear holes next week. <laughs>